Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. We are back again this week on the Tech Ed Podcast, talking about three of my great passions. Regular listeners to our podcast know that I love manufacturing. I spent decades running manufacturing companies. You also know that I am incredibly passionate about technical education, about securing the American dream for the next generation. One of my other passions that you may not know about is I love music. I love listening to music. I love going to see live music. And at one point in my life, I even loved creating music. So our podcast today with the executive vice president of operations for Fender, the co-president of the Fender Play Foundation, Ed McGee, gets to combine all three of these passions. It promises to be a lively and fascinating discussion. So Ed, uh, first of all, welcome. It's great to have you on board. Thanks, Matt. Really excited about being here and always love an opportunity to talk about manufacturing. And don't we both? And when you and I first met, this goes back a few years, you were the general manager at Harley-Davidson Motor Company. You had prior to being the GM there, you had previously served in manager roles and director level positions. Now, a lot of people would feel like they absolutely won the lottery if they were part of the senior leadership team at an iconic American company like Harley-Davidson. It's a brand that its customers literally love so much that they tattoo its name on their skin. Uh, You now serve as the Executive Vice President of Operations at Fender Musical Instruments Corporation and as co-president of the Fender Play Foundation. These organizations, and certainly the name Fender, has a similar level of brand identity among its loyal fans, and it is smack dab in the middle of the entertainment industry. So when you think about your career pathway, uh, first of all, do you feel like the luckiest man alive to work for these great companies? And second, what is it like to work for such recognizable companies? It's absolutely just a gift and a blessing, quite honestly. You know, as I, as I reflect on it, it's just being able to work with amazing people who are incredibly passionate about what they do. Certainly at Fender and at Harley Davidson, it's just what gets you excited is the product is exciting, but it's just the people who are also passionate about that common goal and purpose. I wake up excited about what we're going to do in the course of the day. It's infectious, it's fun, and yes, I do feel like the luckiest person in the world. <laughs> Fantastic. I've got to believe that one of the great things about working at Fender and being such a key member of the team and leading the team is its connection to the entertainment industry. You think about those musicians who have been huge Fender fans themselves, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, Pink Floyd's David Gilmour, Bonnie Raitt, Harrison, Jimi Hendrix, Chrissy Hind, Buddy Holly, the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards, Haim, which if our audience doesn't know, absolutely amazing all-girl band, and I saw Haim perform. They opened up for Taylor Swift at Soldier Field just a few years back. It was an amazing, amazing, just unbelievable amounts of energy. We think about Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, Billie Eilish. If you can't tell, I'm a music fan. Some of the most iconic musicians in rock and roll history and music history play or have played Fender guitars. So who's the most recognizable personality, Ed, that you have met since joining Fender, and what is a lesson that we can learn from that person? I had the great honor and pleasure of being in the studio with the Rolling Stones, actually. Wow. We were just launching the brand new Acoustasonic 
Telecaster and we were doing some artist seating and Paul Waller, who's one of our master builders, actually works with the Stones pretty exclusively on all of their guitars. So he's built a number of guitars for them over the course of the years. Before him, interestingly, the master builders kind of pass on some of the key artists that they built in the custom shop. But Paul Waller said, hey, I got to go deliver some guitars. And I was in Hollywood that day. He goes, did you want to come with? And I was like, yeah, sure. I didn't even ask who it was because it's always fun to watch our builders interact with the artists because there's the magic of the art that they create. And then there's the magic of the interaction between the master builder and the artist as they create a new instrument. You know, it's a new sonic paintbrush. I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. And then uh, he, he comes and picks me up and go, I said, well, where are we going and who are we hanging out with? And he said, yeah, I got to go drop these guitars off to Rolling Stones. And I was like, whoa, uh, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. And we drove to Henson Studios and we, we got in early because if you pay attention and listen to the rules that they provide for you, you kind of get to hang around. If you don't pay attention to the rules, then you kindly get invited not to hang around. It's a great life lesson, right? So, you know, Paul and I, are, we link up with their guitar tech and, you know, it was really cool just kind of meeting and greeting and talking. And he set the parameters around, you know, where we needed to be. And it was like, got it, got it. And the first person that comes in is Charlie Watts. And he, you know, he kind of ambles his way on in and he's, you know, he's got his drum tech. So they kind of get it. And then, you know, you're hanging out in the back and then you see, you know, Ronnie Wood walking in. And then, you know, and then eventually it's, it's Keith and Mick Jagger. And there's a stunning moment of like, holy, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> there are the Rolling Stones. What I found was they are just kind and generous and wonderfully creative human beings. When you're fortunate enough to kind of step back and observe and watch, I mean, you see their creativity, their passion for what they do. And you see how that translates into the music that they write and they create. And, you know, just being in the studio with them was absolutely humbling. Seeing how they interacted with, you know, like Paul Waller, their builder in tech. I mean, it's just like a mutual love and respect and just the creation of art. And it was humbling. It was absolutely humbling to get that opportunity. Absolutely. That mutual love and respect has to be so amazing for a band, obviously, that has spanned the generations. And I think it's pretty safe to say that Keith Richards is going to outlive us both. I think he's bulletproof. But <laughs> what a cool story. I love talking music. I was an avid musician growing up. I actually played the tenor saxophone and the baritone saxophone in a jazz band with several friends. In fact, our crowning moment was when we performed on the stage at Tosa Fest, which if you remember from your days in Milwaukee is a huge festival here in Southeastern Wisconsin. That goes back about 30 years, even more. And a number of the folks that were in that band actually went on to be professional musicians. In my case, I kept music as my hobby, as you know, found my way into the world of manufacturing. I often pondered you know, whether the creativity and the expression that I gained through my interest in music fostered in part my ability to work with teams to creatively solve problems and puzzles on the manufacturing floor. Do you see it the same way? And is there more overlap between art and industry than might meet the eye? I think it's an incredible amount of overlap. You know, just in the space where you need to be creative, there's a degree of vulnerability. There's a degree of working together with your band members. There's a degree of taking an idea and riffing on the idea. And sometimes you apply that riffing to problem solving. Sometimes you apply it to creating something new. Sometimes you get a brief from your CEO and, says, and he says, hey, I want to build a brand new modern acoustic guitar. And just the approach to 
problem solving and creativity requires a level of intellectual curiosity. It requires a level of critical thinking. It requires a level of problem solving. And it feels like in the creative space, problem solving is, you know, iteratively building on something. Whereas problem solving in the manufacturing space is breaking it down into the smaller pieces and kind of intellectualizing, how do I optimize each of those pieces, you know, to, to either improve quality or, or create more predictable outcomes here. So the space where creativity comes from, to me, is shared between, you know, problem solving or writing a song because it requires people to work together. It requires you to suspend belief at some level to go, ah. Huh, that didn't exist before, but how can I combine this and maybe add on this piece and create something that didn't exist before? And having spent time, you know, getting to watch amazing musicians perform their art, but also walking the factory floor and watching our craftsmen and craftswomen, you know, solve problems and come up with amazing solutions that make incredible instruments for our customers. I'd say there's a lot more in common than there is a ladder there. So the creativity, the collaboration, I love the idea of belief suspension and forgetting for the moment about what we think or know or believe to be possible and letting our minds flow into what might be possible. And that's really where true innovation comes from. Also, the, the reference to the craftsmen and craftswomen working in the plant, in the manufacturing facility. That's got to be a fascinating part of your job. I know when we worked together during your time at Harley-Davidson, we talked a lot about safety, standard work, standardized quality, continuous improvement, and how we continually drive cost out of processes to remain competitive. All those things were so important to running a successful manufacturing process. So as you think about your role at Fender, how are the culture and the processes necessary to produce high-quality musical instruments similar to those of other world-class manufacturing operations? And then how are they a little bit different? At Fender, there's a balance between the craftsmanship and then the technology and kind of the manufacturability. What our customers want is, you know, something that's repeatable and replicatable when they buy their Jimmy Page or their Eric Clapton or their Her Signature guitar. They want to know that pick it off, up off the shelf and it, it works. The interesting challenge is we're working with a medium of oh, wood, right? Wood is essentially a living material and it actually reacts very differently than metal. And we're all familiar with metal and plastics and, you know, you hit it, you stamp it and you create something very, very predictable. With wood, you've kind of got to go with the flow of the wood in that, you know, there are built up tensions. Sometimes when you cut wood, it'll splinter because the tree actually grew at an angle, right? That doesn't happen with metal necessarily, right? So I, I think one of the biggest lessons that, that I had coming in is you've got to cut with precision and you have to respect the wood because it is mother nature. And when you walk through a guitar factory, what you're going to see is a lot of whip. And what it is after you cut wood, you've got to let it rest for a period of time. Because if you rush it through the manufacturing process, mother nature will remind you that she is way smarter than you are. <laughs> so you've got to respect the wood. You've got to respect those wait times. I love it because it's fascinating. And literally, you know, we call them the wood whisperers, but we've got folks in the factory. I mean, they know they see either from an engineering standpoint or a master builder standpoint and just the relationship with wood and the angle that you cut it at and the tonal quality of the wood. Because we don't just manufacture an object, we manufacture a musical instrument. And even, you know, we, we call it the final 3% is that transition from a, a manufactured object to a musical instrument because you've got to work the intonation. You've got, you know, it has a voice and it's got to be a predictable voice for the customer. So it's, there are a lot of split, you know, places and spaces where we use traditional lean manufacturing, where we, you know, where we use automation and where we think about, you know, the same things that we talk about in a traditional manufacturing environment, but it's also balanced with the fact that, you know, this instrument is held close to the body. 
So it's got a feel that it has to have. And literally there, the element of craftsmanship is what I just love. And it's fascinating. I get to see a different flow and it is fascinating. Watch someone sand a headstock and like a belt sander, they'll lean into it, pick up a pair of calipers and measure. And then they'll lean into it, pick up a pair of calipers and measure. And it is fascinating in just the, the crafts person element of what we do. And that's what I enjoy the most about being in the factory every day now. Well, and you know, you use the word fascinating. That answer was fascinating to me as someone who spent 20 plus years in manufacturing. I never even thought about the fact that here you are dealing with base material that can change over time. We're taught in manufacturing. In fact, it's drilled into our heads that inventory is evil. The seven deadly wastes inventory is right there on the list. And here you are telling us that WIP, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with that term, that's work and process inventory. That's a you know a subcomponent or a subassembly or a manufactured product that's in the process of being manufactured. We're told that that is just something you have to drive out. And now you walk into this facility after living that world all those years, and you have to totally, you know, to use your term from earlier in the discussion, suspend your belief about what manufacturing should be and really think about what it could be and has to be. Smart folks have walked in and said, oh, we can just go to single piece flow. And right. <laughs> then the wood reminds you <laughs> that it's wood. Yep. And you, know, you, you think about a neck, it's long and thin. So if you cut it too fast, if you don't respect some of those basic parameters around the wood, then the wood does what the wood does. It will move and it will change it back from being an instrument into a manufactured object. And trust me, our artists want instruments. Absolutely. I was going to say, if the wood doesn't remind you, then your customer will, that that wasn't exactly, exactly what, they, what they wanted. So, you know, it's absolutely fascinating. I've got to believe that the technology plays a role in that as well. And as we advance into the world of Industry 4.0, we talk quite a bit here on the Tech Ed podcast about advancements in manufacturing, about IIoT how the whole world of data science and artificial intelligence, certainly automation, are totally changing, totally transforming manufacturing technology, especially given the the unique nature of your products, Ed. How are these technologies and others manifesting themselves at Thunder? Great question. So the conversation that we typically have with our advanced manufacturing team is uh, we talk about elegant automation, right? So when I think about automation, how do I make it safer for our employees to do their jobs? And if you think about you know working with wood, you're sanding, you're polishing. I mean, there's a lot of handwork, right? When we think about automation, what we look at is how do I minimize the amount of you know transformative handwork that needs to happen so that the last 20%, right? So a lot of our focus when we talk about automation is really on safety first. And then the second big component, guitar manufacturing or, or any manufacturing, it's understanding the upstream data. So we spend a lot of time on data collection and, and, and process characterization and process control so that we understand what are the upstream metrics or things that we need to measure so that we get predictable downstream you know, results. And my mantra with my team is we don't want our customers ever becoming our quality checkers. And historically, we, we did a lot of inspection when I started. You know, at the end of the process is the worst time to do inspection because then you end up reworking and you can do it a, a degree of reworking with, with musical instruments, but paint buildup will get too thick. I mean, it makes it more difficult for it to, you know, make that leap from manufactured object into musical instruments. So I'd say our focus from an automation standpoint is really around safety and efficiency. And then from a technology and just monitoring the instruments and, and monitoring those upstream characteristics you know, we do a lot of, a lot of work there with process characterization. Absolutely. And I think as, you know, unsupervised and supervised machine learning, our ability to gather just hordes and hordes of data, 
continues to advance and not just gather that data, but be able to do something with it once we have it is, is going to continue to revolutionize manufacturing and certainly your manufacturing processes at Fender, I would think. Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the language of operations, right? What I find interesting is as we get technology and data, how do we work that into our language, but in a way that tells a very quick and efficient story so that we can, you know, maximize our problem solving, maximize and prioritize the work that we need to do. Because a lot of times folks will just, you know, you got a great data source and they're presenting a lot of data and it's like, all right, well, what does that mean? And that, how does that apply? And then how do I prioritize that with all the rest of the work and information that we have? That has been a constant learning in a very craftsman and craftswoman-like world too, is figuring out our language of operations and how to really efficiently tell the story with data in a way that makes sense for our environment. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes at the uh, IBM had said that 90% of the data that exists in the world today was created within the last two years. And so we're swimming in these hordes and hordes of data. And it is, to your point, just a question of speaking that language of operations and understanding what that data is telling us so we can turn it into something that we call informactionable. In other words, being able to take that data and take action on it. You know, as you think about data and artificial intelligence and, and automation, and you know, we haven't mentioned that you spent a little time in, at ABB as well. So you certainly have some experience on that side of things. What's one bold prediction, Ed, about how manufacturing technology and processes will be vastly different 10 years from now than they are today? Yeah, I think what's happening is the speed with which we react to the customer is that time frame between customer need and then closing it is speeding up. The ability to experiment and work together and kind of iterate. You know, our initial observation was our new products were lagging our core quality, right? So when we launch new products, it's a big learning cycle. And, you know, overall, you've got to get through those learning cycles to match what was our core quality. What we swapped out over time was now our new products are actually driving our core quality and making it better because we're using it to do small experiments. We've applied a lot more thinking up front as we do our new product introductions and figure out those processes and the way that we meet and talk about new products. And then all those innovations are finding their way into core products. The point is lots of experiments. When you're constantly experimenting, I've got a chance to experiment with new technologies like 3D printers. So if an artist has a, you know, a new bridge that they wanna build or they've got a new sound that they're looking to develop, I've got an opportunity to experiment at a much, much faster rate and really kind of design and innovate in a really, really tight circle of innovation and creativity that we talked about earlier. So I can speed the time that it takes to get a new product developed or something truly unique for the artist. And we're seeing that in a lot of different places around the company. That's such an interesting observation. You know, I think about our, our time together in the world of motorcycles. And you know, when you think about companies that have to constantly innovate and constantly produce new products, I mean, that was a world in which you couldn't just wait for five or 10 years. Every single year, there was a new model year coming out. And, and I hadn't really thought about it, but really you face a lot of that same innovation and, and speed challenge at Fender in, in developing new products. Interesting, your observation that in so many ways, that's now helping to drive quality and innovation into the process and actually making you making you better as opposed to just making it more of a challenge. I want to turn our conversation to this whole topic of education 
and learning. You know, it's amazing how our interests and experiences when we're in middle school and high school, it's certainly true of musicians, right? Fuel our future passions and our career choices. I think the lesson for technical education is that we need to provide even more exposure to STEM and manufacturing career choices for our middle school and high school students. Is Fender facing the same challenges in terms of finding skilled talent as other manufacturers are? And if so, how can we inspire more young people toward careers in advanced manufacturing? Absolutely. A lot of the challenges are the same. I think it starts with a manufacturing strategy at the national level. We're on the National Association of Manufacturers at Harley. I joined the organization when I started at Fender. And, you know, great strategy yields predictable outcomes, right? Great strategy, great execution. So when we talk about the need for high schoolers and, you know, not all high schoolers are going to want to go to college. And there's value in their work that we've got to recognize, acknowledge, and shine a light on, on the fact that I can create a great career for you. You can get an education. I mean, there are all these great benefits that companies can provide if we can really think holistically about matching skills and desires and career opportunities with the American workforce. But it starts with a great manufacturing strategy. And that's the thing that we're spending a lot of time talking about the National you know, National Association of Manufacturers. It's where I spend a lot of time talking to the community in Corona, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and our legislators around, hey, look, let's figure out a way to make sure that we can match, you know, the kids who are into engineering, get them out to the factory and let them see it and get inspired by, you know, a career in guitar making. Because sometimes they don't know that we have a, you know, just a plethora of incredible engineers doing great work in the factory. If you've got a kid who loves working with his hands and loves woodworking, give us your best and brightest because we've got an opportunity that that kid can grow up and be a master builder one day. And all of our master builders started out, you know, many of them started off sweeping the floors, right? But they had a passion, they worked with their hands and, and they were really committed to learning. I think part two of that question is we just have to inspire all of our workers to really be committed to learning. So, if we don't have a strategy around really making those investments and inspiring kids to get into these careers and let them know their work is valuable in manufacturing, it starts with a great strategy and then you execute all of those pieces and parts. And our producer, Melissa Martin, is nodding her head because that answer sounds like a page right out of the Tech Ed Podcast playbook. It was absolutely <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Talking about the value of manufacturing, about the handful of ways that we have in our economy to create true wealth and true opportunity. Uh, we, inspiring young people toward those careers. How many times, Melissa, have you heard me talk about manufacturing being that place where we can start out sweeping the floor and end up running the company or pausing anywhere along that line and having an amazing family-supporting, sustainable career that's interesting, that it's exciting. And then the other part is the importance of incumbent worker training and how we're not just going to solve this problem by inspiring young people. That's the key part of the solution. We also have to train our existing workers, train our incumbent workers, get them passionate and committed to lifelong learning as technology changes. There's so many different ways that we can inspire people who are either already in manufacturing or porting over to manufacturing. I want to touch on one of those other ways we haven't talked about just yet. Ed, you're a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. You rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps. You are now a member of the Board of Advisors for the Manufacturing Institute's Heroes Make America. We talked about that a little bit earlier, building connections between the military community and the manufacturing industry. Do you think our service members transitioning to employment in the private sector and our veterans who are otherwise 
unfamiliar with the world of manufacturing, are they surprised by the opportunities that await them when they get to manufacturing? I think we have done a poor job of exposing them to a lot of those opportunities. And that's where, you know, we're working with uh, Heroes Make America to just let folks know about the opportunities in manufacturing. Because what's funny is for all the rest of the companies that are on the advisory board, I mean, they're dying to get veterans. They know the skill set. They know the core leadership capabilities of transitioning veterans are are exceptional. The, The challenge is the veteran has to learn how to translate, you know, his or her experiences into skills that make sense in the jobs that they're going after. They've got to do the prep work, right? So it's just like anything else. You got to get in there, do the prep work, you know, learn how to interview. And there's some blocking and tackling investments that you have to make in yourself and your career to do that transition. But this all goes back to, we've got to get the military to really partner with industry. Because in a lot of cases, we will have programs, but the challenge is, you know, the military is a little bit shorthanded. So giving the, you know, the, the military members the time and space to do that transition work is absolutely critical for their future. And I think the challenge is we've got to view that very holistically and industry's got to work with the military and figuring out how to make it as easy as possible, how to make it as attractive and, and inspire the, the military members and, and let them know how much industry would appreciate their talent and their work, but you got to learn the game and it's a different language and, you know, you got to put in the work to make that transition work. So yeah, I I would love to do more to just expose folks to the opportunities and show, you know, some of the existing leaders in the military, how critical it is to just make that investment because the best thing for the military in terms of recruiting is great military members who transition out and have great careers when they leave because they're going to inspire their communities. They're going to tell their stories. It's a long view of the recruiting pipeline for the military, but we can do a lot more work in that space. Without question. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, our mutual friend, John Lowry, who was a guest on the Tech Ed podcast not too terribly long ago, just finished up a role as the Assistant Secretary of Labor for the United States in focusing on veterans employment and putting our veterans in a great place. He made an observation when he was with us that it's literally more difficult to get into the military in terms of expectations than it is to get into a, a four-year university. And a lot of folks don't appreciate or recognize that. But these really are our best and brightest, and they have tremendous experience. And if we can inspire them toward these types of careers, and then, of course, work with our military branches as these folks are transitioning in their final six months of service into whatever comes next, make sure they understand what those great opportunities are. It's just a huge, huge benefit to, to all parties involved. It's an incredible opportunity to honor their service. It's not just veterans working at your company. There are organizations where veteran-owned companies, right? So we've got a great supplier diversity program. And we're looking at investing more dollars in veteran-owned businesses. We've got to think about it a little bit more comprehensively. Absolutely. And what a great message for the world of technical education. We have so many technical educators that are a key part of our audience here at the TechEd podcast. On that note, Ed McGee, if you could leave the world of technical education with one piece of advice as it relates to preparing students for careers in industry, what would that piece of advice be? I think we should just shine a light on the incredible opportunities that manufacturing creates. Again, it goes back to, we've got to get back into the business of making things as Americans and shining a light on the people who do the work and celebrating their work is a critical part of inspiring that next generation to take on the work. 
And shining a light on those opportunities, I know, is a, a big part of your work at the Fender Play Foundation, where you serve as the co-president. I want to talk a little bit about that organization as well. You work with other organizations and educators and artists to support communities through things like equipment donations, personalized instruction, artist experiences. Tell us a little bit, Ed, if you would, what outcomes are you targeting with this organization? And can you share a success story or two? We had started the work of the Fender Play Foundation really probably in late 2019. And Andy was just looking at, we want to do good as a business, but we also want to give back and can do both. So we had uh, Superintendent Butner, who's the superintendent of LA Unified School District, swing by for a, a chat, probably November, December timeframe. We get a call in March, right? COVID was hitting. And he said, hey, look, we've got to transition all of our schools to online learning. In summer school, we're going to do a great job with reading, writing, and arithmetic, but we want to figure out some other creative ways, you know, to teach and to innovate and to learn. So essentially, it was a small experiment. And he said, hey, look, I want, I want to run a pilot using Fender Play and the Fender Play Foundation. And we're like, great. You know, what do you think? A pilot, maybe two or two or 300 kids. And he goes, how about a thousand kids? Wow. We did a, you know, a big swallow and like, woof, okay, let's figure out how we're going to do this. So we, we launched a pilot in the summer of last year in the middle of COVID, and it was really, really innovative in that we wanted to equip the kids, so we sent the instruments directly to their homes. Uh, we wanted to educate the kids, so we worked with LAUSD and developed some, you know, some really, really good professional development for the instructors because live instruction combined with the Fender Play app is really one of the best ways to make sure that you continue playing. We equipped, we educated, and then we inspired. We brought artists in, and what we found is artists were really excited about the purpose and goals. And, you know, middle school is an interesting time frame for investing in music education, because typically they're really good programs in elementary school. They're really good programs in high school. Sure. But interestingly, the middle school kids tend to get left out. And 13 is typically the age that kids pick up guitar and stick with it. It was an interesting sweet spot we learned a lot in that summer program. The, the instructors, the, you know, the staff at LAUSD, they were absolutely amazing. And we really organized around taking care of the kids and doing something unique and giving them something to do during the summertime, which was probably a summer where kids needed an outlet. They were facing a lot of incredible challenges. And the feedback from the parents and the kids, you know, having that instrument over the summer really changed their outlook over the course of a pretty incredible year. So we learned a lot. We launched the fall program. We're into the spring program. We've got over 3,100 kids in the program, and they're learning ukulele, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and electric bass. We, we hope to have almost 10,000 kids served by the end of this year. And our long-term vision and goal is by 2030, we're going to figure out how to serve a million kids. So we're looking at, you know, what does that look like over the next three to 10 years? And the word that we repeat all the time is we want to make something that is sustainable. The most joy that I've had probably in my four years after the summer program, the teachers put together this video of the kids playing a song together. And it started off with a couple of kids playing and it would progressively build to almost a thousand kids at different times, you know, just playing the one song and to see the smiles on their faces, to see the connection that they were making with their fellow classmates, you know, just to see the power of what music does and, you know, how, how it, it inspires a young mind. It, it gives it a little bit of space to get a voice. And I mean, just watching that all come together was just 
powerful. It was powerful for me. It's powerful for all the employees at Fender who work on the program. And it, you know, it's an honor to be able to serve kids in that way. We can hear and feel the energy and the passion and the enthusiasm in your voice. So clearly that was a, a momentous uh, occasion. And imagine what that'll sound like when it goes from a thousand children to a million in the year 2030. So what a fantastic goal. This focus on sustainability is so very important, making sure that we're doing good, not just today, but doing good for a long period of time and, and touching lives in the right way. You know, we close out our time with a couple questions. That's a good segue into the final set of topics that we had for you. And I want to turn our discussion now, Ed, to the whole topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I know that these have been passions of yours for your entire career. So as a person of color and a leader who summited the highest echelons of industry, any interesting stories that you would like to share, especially as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what advice would you have for others hoping to make a similar journey? I think one of my biggest lessons about diversity is that it is the biggest and out there, right? So, you know, folks oftentimes will frame problems as it's an and or an or. If it's an or, it's a zero-sum game. When you take diversity and make it a zero-sum game, then you're not understanding and, and respecting all the possibility of what it can bring to your organization. And you're marginalizing the people you're trying to help. Focus on the customers. So, you know, one of the things that Andy Mooney did when he started is he took a look at who are our new customers? Right. When you look at 50% of your new customers being female, you probably need to get that perspective as you design products, as you go to market, as you, I mean, you've got to have that perspective. When you look at 20% of your new customers are people of color, you want to make sure that you reflect that in the work that you do around marketing and the products and how you connect this big picture, because those are your future customers. When you kind of step back and view diversity as an and, it's bring those perspectives in and expand your, you know, when you suspend belief and you can do it with a diverse, you know, a diverse team, you step back and look at the problem differently and oftentimes see things through a lens that you may not have seen before. It's great from a business perspective, but more importantly, when you start recognizing the diversity and the whole person as they come to work, everyone gets more excited about their work. Right. If you know that you can bring this perspective into work and apply it to problem solving and it is valued, it gets your employees motivated. There are just so many lessons around why it is critical. And, you know, folks focus on the business case. It's like, yeah, you, you can do the business case work. But at the end of the day, you've got to think about your future and what your customers need. And how to you know respect and value their opinions and perspectives as you create and innovate the products and services that you use to support them. So that's super super critical. The customer perspective, absolutely. Our teams have organized around you know three specific objectives that Andy kind of laid upon the organization. The first one is around diversity recruiting, and we've made some incredible strides in making sure that we have representative voices from females engineering, operations, you know, product. I mean, just across the board in traditional and non-traditional areas. Fender's a very Hispanic company. So when you take a look at the company as a whole, we're about 70% Latin or Latin American, right? That's a great perspective to bring into how do you motivate our employees? How do you make sure that you're speaking to them in a language and from a cultural representation that they understand and it shows and reflects that you respect them. And when you respect your employees, 
you get a whole lot more back. It's been amazing to watch that work. Part two is amplifying the voices of our artists. So we've got a very diverse roster of artists and we want to make sure that we're representing their voices. And then the last work is really the work around the Fender Play Foundation because we're going to, you know, we're working with LAUSD. Again, seeing the smiling faces as they get the guitars, as they get the lessons, as they start to create. One of the kids, a bass player, was on NBC Nightly News Kids with Lester Holt as they were jamming together. And, you know, this 13-year-old kid was talking about his favorite music was funk, right? Because immediately he listens for the bass line. And, and just to see the joy and, and the smiles and the kids having opportunities that might change the trajectory of their lives. I mean, that's doing good work and running a fantastic business at the same time. It's an and, not an or. And not an or. And, and listening to all the different examples of the voice of the customer, the work at the Fender Play Foundation, the work that you're doing internally, lifting up the, the voices of the artists that are using your product, such a great way to create a huge movement around this whole idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Certainly great things happening specifically related to Fender. And a question is, as you look at the progress that you're making there, and maybe we take the view up a, a few thousand feet and look at what's happening you know, across the United States, do you feel we're making genuine progress on the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And what can and should our manufacturers and our educators do to facilitate improvement and continue to move us forward? There are always going to be challenges, but I think what I have heard and seen and, you know, and talking to peers, et cetera, is that there's hope, right? There's a level of acknowledgement and understanding that we can do things better. I think this goes back to simple examples of, of leadership. Our politicians need to work together to solve problems, okay? There are always different perspectives. We need to work together to solve problems in the factories, right? There's always different perspectives. But at the end of the day, what we need is leaders to step in and create the strategies hold each other accountable and drive towards some of those outcomes that make our communities better and stronger, that invest in our future in a way that creates really predictable outcomes. And at the end of the day, when we work together, I mean, I, I saw this in the military, when we work together as a team, we can accomplish pretty incredible tasks. And doing the impossible becomes impossible when you drop all the pretenses, you work together, everyone's focused on something bigger than themselves. And I think it would be great if America could focus on manufacturing as something that unites the country, something that we can all work together towards and something that benefits everyone's communities. Any investment in that is a good investment, whether it applies to diversity, our education, our careers, or creating a vibrant middle class. It all comes together in making things. Without question. And I think the two key takeaways are everybody working together and having leaders that step in. Our guest today on the TechEd podcast, the Executive Vice President of Operations for Fender, the co-president of the Fender Play Foundation, is certainly a leader who has stepped in, stepped in on the manufacturing front, on education, on diversity, on just a whole host of different topics. We've had a great discussion here today, Ed McGee. It's been awesome having you on the TechEd podcast. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your time. Well, it's an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And anything that I can do to support the growth of manufacturing in the U.S. and, and certainly as, at Fender, it's an honor to be a part of that work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.